This week on Daiwa, we're discussing Grundy County. A former bandmaster is charged for the murder of his stepmother. Welcome to Daiwa, the first Iowa-focused true crime podcast, where there's 99 counties and a murder in every one. These are your hosts, Beth LaValle and Allie Tulin. All right, Beth, we're in Grundy County. I honestly don't know if I've been to Grundy County, but I will say Grundy Center sounds familiar. Am I really dumb or is that where like the the country concert happens? The country concert? Isn't there like a big country concert every summer? Or is that Guthrie? That's Guthrie. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> oh, okay, Grundy, so I- Guthrie, I'll let you slide. <laughs> I don't think I know about Grundy County then. But it is named after Felix Grundy, who was a congressman and a senator from Tennessee and served as the 13th Attorney General of the United States in 1838. Grundy Center is the largest town followed by Rhinebeck in Grundy County. I found out Robert Hugh Willoughby, also known as the, quote, American Grandmaster of the Flute, (laughs) was born in Grundy Center. Also, the current mayor of Key West, Florida, Terry Johnston, was born in Conrad, Iowa, in Grundy County. Don't blame Terry for getting out of Iowa to go to Key West. (laughs) Sounds nice, actually. Uh, okay, well, I had a hard time finding fun facts about Grundy Center. Not saying it's not a great place, but just, you know, need more fun facts on their website or Wikipedia pages. Please. <laughs> but I'm going to do mine on an organization that our victim was a part of, and it is called the PEO Sisterhood. And it sounds pretty cool, but it was the first time I had heard of it. Do you know what it is? No idea. Okay, so PEO stands for Philanthropic Educational Organization, and the organization's mission is to promote educational opportunities for women. The organization was founded in 1869 by seven students at the Iowa Wesleyan University in Mount Pleasant, Iowa, and their website says, since its inception in 1869, the nonprofit has helped more than 116,000 women pursue educational goals by providing over $383 million in grants, scholarships, awards, and loans. Also, it's headquartered in Des Moines, so I'm really sad I I didn't know about it until now. Same. And I've got a dumb question for you. Is Iowa Wesleyan University still in Mount Pleasant, Iowa? Is this still a thing? Yes. Okay. Interesting. There's a couple colleges in Mount Pleasant, Iowa, then. So yeah, the university is a private four-year liberal arts college still in Mount Pleasant. Oh, good to know. Okay. All good fun facts, but let's get to the murder. It's 1932. Iowan Herbert Hoover is still president because we always have episodes in this era. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) And, And prohibition is still happening. The United States Post Office issues a set of 12 stamps commemorating the 200th anniversary of George Washington's birth. In March, Charles Lindbergh Jr., the infant son of the famous aviator Charles Lindbergh, is kidnapped from his family home in New Jersey, and in Washington, D.C., the FBI Scientific Crime Detection Laboratory, better known as the FBI Crime Lab, officially opens. Okay, thanks for setting the scene. 
It is Friday, July 1st of 1932, and four miles northeast of the Grundy County town Rhinebeck, Florence May Whalen was sitting in a parked car on one of her farms when she was shot with a 12-gauge single-barrel shotgun. I would describe Florence as taller and having brown hair. Sorry, I couldn't think of a celebrity doppelganger, but she was 62 (laughs) at the time. We both tried really hard. Her stepson, Cressy Whalen, who was living in Waterloo, was formally charged with Florence's murder that evening. I would say Cressy looked like Frederick March, but I doubt anyone gets that reference. (laughs) If you want to watch the first version of A Star is Born, like the Lady Gaga, Bradley Cooper movie, that would be Frederick. Bradley Cooper (laughs) is Frederick March. (laughs) But anyway, the degree of murder was not specified. Cressy sounded like a pretty popular guy. He was the leader of the American Legion Band in Waterloo and a former president of the Waterloo Symphony Orchestra. And another fun fact is the orchestra still exists today, and Cressy is listed as a founder on their website. Others at the farm at the time of Florence's murder were Florence's husband, Andrew Whalen, and Cressy's wife. At the crime scene, the sheriff, M.G. Maminga, found two empty shells near the car, one about 60 feet from the spot where the car was parked and the other in the road. Dr. H.V. Collar of Rhinebeck had previously stated that two shots had been fired, one striking Florence in the forehead and the other from close range in the back near her right shoulder blade. The side of her car was left dented in pellets. The sheriff and county attorney Ed Rupel investigated the entire scene the following afternoon and traveled to Waterloo to meet with Cressy Whalen's acquaintances. At the same time, the Waterloo Sheriff, H.T. Wagner, was a close friend of Cressy's and traveled to Grundy Center on Saturday to speak with him. He also had four attorneys lined up, A.A. Zimmerman, W.L. Beecherm, and E.H. McCoy from Waterloo and Sherman DeWolf of Rhinebeck. I just want to pause and say it's like maybe a trend of newspapers all the time to not give actual names and just do like first initials like first name middle name i i'm mad about it about this podcast but if someone wanted to refer to me as bp lavalley like i wouldn't be mad about it oh see okay that's cooler than aj Tulin. i kind of love aj Tulin. Ooh, no i do not holly <laughs> joe so gross well this case is fascinating because there was an eyewitness to the murder her name was mrs herman byrne And Mrs. Byrne was a tenant of one of the farms owned by Andrew Whalen, who, again, was Cressy's father. When interviewed by reporters, Mrs. Byrne said that she was clear on all details of the shooting, except that she did not remember the exact number of shots fired. She thought she heard one, but her daughter said that she had heard two. According to Mrs. Byrne, Cressy and his wife had driven down to Rhinebeck from Waterloo early Friday afternoon. They visited the farms owned by Cressy's father often, and Cressy had even had a garden on the unoccupied farm that summer. Mrs. Byrne said Cressy parked in front of the unoccupied farm house across from Mrs. Byrne's place that day. She saw him get out of the car to shoot gophers, but then she saw Andrew and his wife, Florence May Whalen, drive up and park in front of Cressy's car. Cressy came from the farmyard to his father's car and took him by the arm. They went to a shed in the back of the farmhouse. The next thing she saw was Cressy starting back to the unoccupied house by the cars. She saw him with his gun up to his shoulder when he fired, and then Mrs. Whalen slumped over. 
Mrs. Byrne and Cressy's wife were both screaming hysterically. She ran out onto her porch and Cressy handed her the gun. He said, don't worry, Mrs. Byrne, I'm going to call my friend Sheriff Wagner at Waterloo. I've done it for the sake of my father. I'll know I'll spend the rest of my life in prison, but I've stood it for 10 years and I've lived in hell. Mrs. Byrne then watched Cressy and his wife walk north into a field where Bert Watson of Rhinebeck was working. Bert told reporters that Cressy said nothing to him about the shooting. After they got into their car and drove to Bert Watson's home from the house, Cressy called his friend, the Waterloo Sheriff Wagner, and told him to drive down to Rhinebeck. He did not give Sheriff Wagner a reason. The sheriff was unable to go, so he sent Deputy Sheriff W.F. Dilworth. After Cressy called Henry Dahlman, the manager of the Legion Band in Waterloo, and said he wouldn't be able to lead the band that night, but he didn't give Dahlman a reason why. Meanwhile, Mrs. Byrne called Dr. H.B. Collar, who drove to the farm and found Florence Whalen dead in the car. He then called the coroner, Lou Kaufman, and Sheriff Maminga. Andrew Whalen, Florence's husband and Cressy's father, was driven to his home in the murder car after the body had been taken out. Andrew Whalen was said to be in bad health and suffered from mental illness. Friends said he did not really grasp what had happened. Back at the Burt Watson house, both Waterloo and Grundy County's deputy sheriffs arrived and stayed until late Friday evening talking with Cressy. They eventually took him to the Grundy County Jail. One of Cressy's lawyers told them not to let reporters interview Cressy. They also stated he did not confess to the crime. Mrs. Byrne and other Rhinebeck residents had seen Cressy and his stepmother Florence fight often. Cressy was the adopted son of Andrew and his first wife. Mrs. Byrne said Cressy and his wife had been in Rhinebeck Sunday and Tuesday and had seen arguments on both visits. On Tuesday, there was a trunk which Cressy claimed had been given to him and which his stepmother also claimed as her own. Mrs. Byrne said she did not hear whatever argument took place on Friday before the shooting. Florence Whalen was described as living pearly all her life, which, Beth, I meant to look up. Do you know what that means? <laughs> I assumed it meant, like, polished. Yeah, polished, like, shiny, like, okay, good to go. Okay, well, we'll go with that. <laughs> she taught in the public schools for 15 years. Uh, she had been born September 20th, 1869 in Belle Plaine, Iowa, but was married in June of 1912 to Andrew Whalen in Sioux City. They didn't have any children of their own. Um, she was also reportedly a member of the Congressional Church and the corresponding secretary of Chapter DQ of the PEO Sisterhood. She did have a surviving sister, Mrs. Carl H. Steinmeier of Marshalltown, and her funeral was held the Sunday afternoon, just two days after the murder. On September 9th, 1932, it's reported that the state will ask a first-degree murder verdict on Cressy Whelan, but it will not demand the death penalty. Just to set up this trial, I'm imagining it's pretty similar to Roxy Hart's trial in the musical Chicago. Highly recommend. There's a newspaper article from The Courier in Waterloo titled, Whelan Murder Trial Principles Act in Drama They Write As They Go. One quote from the article reads, Members of the cast which plays the Whelan murder trial are doing so without script to aid them, without following a formally studied out plot, and without rehearsals. 
Yet hour by hour, the drama unfolds. A courtroom jammed to capacity looks on. Each person takes part as if, according to many rehearsals, and a new play is made. Not an old one reacted. There are the stars, the supporting actors and actresses, the comedy relief players. Master of the situation is Judge A.B. Lovejoy, white-haired, kindly-faced. He is highly intent upon what takes place before him. He has warned the jury and audience that this case is of utmost importance, both to the state and to the defendant. Cressy's trial started on September 19th of 1932. He claims his father Andrew shot and killed his wife on the farm in Rhinebeck in July. Cressy said Andrew left the shed on the farm before he did, and he saw Andrew running towards the car with a shotgun in his hands. He said after Andrew shot Florence, he grabbed the gun and wiped it down. Since his prints were all over it, he said he had to take the blame. Here's a quote from the trial. I told my wife I had to take the blame and for God's sake help me. I told her go ahead and get hold of Cap Wagner or Zim. And just for reference, he's talking about Sheriff Wagner and Zim is one of his defense attorneys. He claims not to remember what he told Mrs. Byrne that day. Cressy said he was adopted by Andrew and his first wife, Tessie Whalen, from his birth, and he lived with them until he was eight years old. He then went on and lived with someone named Mrs. Bryce, or Brice, and then Grandma Gibson. And then when he was 14, Andrew married Florence, and Cressy moved into the Burt Watson home, where he remained until he joined the Navy at 17. During his testimony, it was reported that Cressy's voice was clear and firm and was absolutely unexcited. Cressy's defense attorney, Beecher, told the court, quote, We have direct evidence that Andrew fired the shots, and I will now say professionally that we will introduce it. The direct evidence was a door from one of the wagons in which Andrew Whalen used to travel with a wagon show. The door had a shot embedded in it. Bert Watson also testified. He said he had known Cressy since school. He said Cressy's wife told him Florence had been shot, but did not specify who did it. Another witness was Dr. Carl Bickley, who was a Waterloo physician. He said Andrew and Florence had visited him often because Andrew was unwell. He did recognize Cressy. He said Cressy stopped by his office before to ask about his father's condition. He said Cressy asked him if Andrew's mental condition was such that he would be able to make a will. Also, he asked how long Andrew was expected to live. Another interesting note from the trial is that the state kept the garments worn by Florence when she was killed, and I believe they were presented during the trial. There were three garments that were matted with blood, and they included a black dress with pink and white figures, which had an oval hole in the right side of the back. And the hole was said to be as wide as a quarter and a half and, again, just as long. There was also a white underdress that had a similar hole and a white undershirt that showed a tear under one arm but no hole. After eight hours of deliberation, the jury reached a verdict, which was read in court at 2.50 a.m. Cressy Whalen was found not guilty of the murder of Florence May Whalen with a jury of 12 men. Judge Lovejoy read the verdict in front of the defendant, his wife, the jury, court officials, attorneys, and about 30 friends of Cressy. It was reported Cressy showed no emotion as he was brought from the jail to hear the verdict. His wife showed that she was trying to control herself under the strain. 
As the judge read, quote, We, the jury, find Cressy Whalen not guilty. Mrs. Whalen's body seemed to wilt. Her head dropped and tears came. Cressy stepped to her side and they embraced and both cried. Two of the defense lawyers were also visibly emotional. After the trial, Cressy and his wife went back to Bert Watson's house to pick up their young son and daughter who had been staying there. They arrived home to 1810 4th Street West in Waterloo around 5 a.m. Just another fun fact for you, the Wayland's Waterloo home is right next to Lovejoy Avenue in Waterloo. Just another fun fact for you, the Wayland's Waterloo home is right next to Lovejoy Avenue in Waterloo. Just thought that was a weird coincidence since the judge presiding over his case was also named Lovejoy. County Attorney Rupel said that he had not decided what, if any, action would be taken against Andrew Whalen after the trial. Rupel said he is an old man and has been represented as mentally incompetent. He was also reported to be under the care of a guardian, and the court would not even let Andrew testify during the trial because of this. The next story in the case comes in October, and it was just a report on how much the case had cost. So it was said the Wayland trial costs were reported to be around $1,775 and were expected to reach over $2,000. That same year, on November 3rd, Adrian Wayland died. He was 75 years old. Unfortunately, Cressy had not been legally adopted by Andrew, so Florence and Andrew's estates went to a distant relative. Cressy tried to object, but withdrew his objections. Cressy died in 1980. He was 82 years old and living in Signal Hill, California. His survivors included his wife, whose name we finally get, Viola Anna Noel, two daughters, Dorothy Cook and Nikki Crane, one son, Charles, five grandchildren, and one great-grandchild. It was reported that Cressy moved his family to Long Beach, California in the 1930s following the trial. All right, definitely some questions for Taps here. Ready to give him a call? Yep, let's do it. Hi, Taps. Hello. Thanks for joining. So we are talking about Grundy County and the murder of Florence Whalen. This is the one where her stepson, Cressy, is accused of murdering her and then they come back and say it was maybe actually her husband and Cressy's father, Andrew. So our first question is, have you been to Grundy County? And I have. Do you know any fun facts? Uh, no, no fun facts, but I've been there. We should be the ones that sticks with the fun facts. Um, how do people decide how many people are on a jury? The constitution. So in felony cases and most misdemeanor cases in the United States, a jury by 12 is mandated. Wait, so there are only 12 people on a jury? Right. And then usually two, depends on the jurisdiction, but sometimes a couple of alternates that listen to the case, but don't vote unless somebody gets thrown off the jury for a reason or they're sick or something like that. Why do I feel like there have been juries that are bigger than that? Um, I don't know. Grand juries. 12 has been the number. It actually comes from old English law. Okay. Weird. How do you select a jury? You do it by the process of voir dire, which is a process where uh, initially the, before we get to voir dire, 
the clerk of courts selects a jury pool, usually for a time period. People sit on that jury pool until they're called. Federal and states do it a little bit differently. You usually have to fill out a questionnaire. A lot of it's done online now. Those questionnaires will go to the lawyers that are picking the jury. And on the day a trial is scheduled, the clerk will call a predetermined amount of people to the courthouse. And that's when the voir dire begins. Voir dire is when the lawyers question the jurors to make sure they have a representative sample of a jury of their peers. And they try to eliminate people on the jury that they believe have biases or some kind of conflict. They can also exclude jurors just because they just don't like them. Uh, they get so many of those strikes when they select. The only thing that you cannot use when you do those strikes is race. There's a case called Baston that the United States Supreme Court said that you cannot throw people off juries just because of race. How do you think they would have, you know, or do you think they would have looked for biases back then? This is like 1932. Yeah. Probably not a lot different than what we do today. Have you ever had a family member that's been victimized in a crime? Do you have any knowledge of the people involved in this case? Do you have knowledge of the law enforcement officials that have investigated this case? Uh, how much have you read about this case before today? How much have you been exposed? Back then, they wouldn't have had the problems with exposure as much because it would all have been newsprint. How but, would they have gone to collect people, though? Like, you're, you're going to go sit on a jury. They do it usually by voting records and driver's mm -hmm. license records, where, however they build the pool. I've been on a pool a couple of times. It's fairly common to get asked. I've never been selected, obviously. Because of your history as a detective or lawyer? or both? Probably both. Cool. Allie, have you been on a jury? I have not. Yeah, me either. I don't know if I want to. <laughs> Depends on the case. <laughs> yeah. If someone is found not guilty, do they still have to pay for lawyer fees? If they're indigent, no, because the courts and the state will pay for their lawyers. But yeah, if they have money, absolutely. Part of um, the defense was that Andrew Whalen, so Cressy's father, or he was technically an adopted father, was not all mentally there at the time this murder took place and um, the trial. They did not let him testify because of that. Do you see this happen often? So I'm assuming they did not affirmatively tie his defense to insanity. Is that correct? They never even tried Andrew. They were just his, the son, Cressy, was on trial. But they're, so Cressy is the defendant. Cressy's defense was that he did not commit the murder his father did, but he took the blame because his handprints were on the gun. And so they didn't put the father on the witness stand because of his mental condition? Correct. That It's just a tactic that the defense or the prosecution, whoever called him as a witness, decided to use. Yeah, there are a lot of people that when you evaluate them, you don't want to put them on a witness stand because either in some cases they narrate too much, they say too much stuff that leads them into trouble. Sometimes they're argumentative. Sometimes their value to the case is not that great. It just depends. But that, those are all strategies that the attorneys use to try to put their best case forward. So it could have been a strategy that maybe Andrew Whalen was better off than they represented him, but they just didn't want him to testify to help Cressy get off? 
it's a possibility. I mean, it sounds like the defense attorney strategy was to paint the stepfather as a possible suspect mm-hmm. and raise reasonable doubt in the jury's minds that they don't have the right guy. Like how credible is it to only have a first person witness to the murder, like one person's word against another, you aren't really backing that up with anything else. Well, so the, the job of the attorneys on both sides is to make her either credible or not credible in the eyes of the jury. And so that's, that would have been the tack they would have used when they did direct and cross-examination of her on the witness stand is the trier of fact, which is the jury, needs to decide whether this woman is credible and what she saw really happened. And so both sides would either try to bolster that or attack it, depending on what their defense was or prosecution. So the other thing with this case is Florence Whalen was shot in a car right after they removed her body somebody drove Andrew Whalen, her husband, back home in that same car. And so they got rid of the crime scene. And we talked about keeping evidence or crime scenes like a car in the Martingo case. But when do you think police started holding on to those things or started better examining them? Well, I think it was an evolution for a couple of different reasons. First of all, an evolution by the standards that juries and judges expected out of investigation. The other thing would be, you know, back in the 30s, a lot of those counties, rural counties might have had one sheriff or a sheriff and a deputy, and they really weren't manned to do anything. And finally, of course, just the evolution of forensics. I mean, as forensics got better, it became more apparent that we had to have pristine crime scenes and things like that. Also, it this is the 1930s, again, pretty sensational in the reporting. But the other thing that happened was they brought in the clothes that Florence was murdered in, in the courtroom. Does this still happen? And is it actually helpful? Or is it just something that an attorney would use to to make you feel for the victim? Well, the defense attorney would always have the ability to object to the prejudicial nature of the evidence. But the clothes the victim is wearing, especially if we're talking about cause of death, or things of that nature could be extremely relevant to the jury. You know, this is where the bullet passed through whatever. And of course, in recent times, the clothes become very important because of blood typing, DNA, things of that, like that. The size of the glove. (laughs) Right. The glove doesn't fit, you acquit. Johnny Cochran. Uh, Cressy called Waterloo's Sheriff Wagner, who was one of his friends. How would that Or could that have impacted the verdict or trial? And if that happened today, is that allowed? What would happen? Well, it'd be allowed. Um, I have seen many cases where defendants have called law enforcement officers or someone else as character witnesses in cases. And it's a very fine line for the law enforcement officer to walk. We want to present all the relevant evidence, but obviously the law enforcement officers are usually more closely tied with the prosecution than they are with the defense. Although in our system of justice, they should be only pushing for fair and equitable trial. Do you ever see law enforcement officers get in trouble for? No, I think it would be difficult for a police administrator to hold a law enforcement officer in some kind of discipline because he has been or she has been subpoenaed by a defense attorney into a case. I mean, 
you're mandated to appear by subpoena and you're mandated to tell the truth by the judge when he swears you in. If you are accused of a murder that you didn't commit, who should you call or who do you not call? Well, the first person you call is your lawyer. And if your lawyer is a good criminal defense lawyer, I assume the first thing they are going to tell you is don't talk to anyone else and don't tell anyone anything, including me. I don't want to know whether you did or did not do this crime. I want you to tell me if you're guilty or innocent. And if you're innocent, I'm going to put on the best defense I can for you. And if you tell me that you committed the crime, then I have some obligation under the ethics rules not to try the case because I am hiding a material fact. So that's a, that's a really big Pandora's box for criminal defense lawyers. They have to be very careful about that. So you're saying if I commit a murder, I can call you? You probably want somebody with a little more experience than me. <laughs> Sounds like you have a lot of experience. <laughs> well, yeah, but not, try, not trying uh, cases <laughs> where defendants are accused of murder. I have not done that. All right. Well, any final thoughts on Grundy County and the murder of Florence Whalen? No, I think it's, it's a fairly, if you want to call murder typical, but a fairly typical 1930s murder story. All right. Well, thanks. We'll call you again. Thank you. Oh, hello there. As a marketer, I hate promotions like this. Same and same. But I love content. Me too. So if you like our content, give us a like, follow, share, subscribe, note, fax, literally anything you think would help us continue making Daiwa a success. Thank you, thank you, thank you.